If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. If you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll get one into your hands. And we like everyone to hear the Word of God, but we like them to read it as well. So it goes in the ear gate, the eye gate as well, and uh, gets a double deep place within our hearts. And if you don't own a Bible, then just feel free to take that one home and uh, make it your own and make a good friend uh, of it. First Peter chapter two, beginning in verse 13. The word of the Lord, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Let's pray together. Lord, we agree with uh, the prayer that Pastor Jonathan prayed to open our service today. And we just desire that our lives, as a result of meeting together, would bring you pleasure, bless your heart, but also, Lord, that you would use this time to continue to conform us into the image of Christ, to continue to fashion us after him, the greatest life that has ever been lived, to fashion our doing, our thinking, our saying, our motives, our everything, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would use these handful of verses this morning to take and fashion important part of our lives and uh, to bring it in line with exactly what you want us to be. We ask for a great work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts through your word. We pray that in each heart that stands before you right now, even as we have read the scripture and prayed and worshipped you, Lord, still sometimes, even at this place in the service, uh, your spirit is not yet in control of our heart and our mind. Other spirits, whether the flesh or spiritual warfare, can still be distracting us. We pray that you break all of that off, just in the greatness of your Holy Spirit in this room right now, the greatness of your Holy Spirit in our lives, Lord, and just out of the greatness of your love and concern for us and your desire for us to commune with you through your word and to understand your word. And so we just set all of this aside to your Holy Spirit. and We just trust him to take charge in that way in each one of our lives as we enjoy your word this morning. We ask it of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Peter has just instructed us in verses 11 and 12 that the single best way that we have to silence unjust slander that is being meted out against us as Christians is to meet it with a life of godly character and a life that is filled with good works. And then we notice the very first word of verse 13 is the word therefore. And as the old saying goes, when you see the word therefore, you ask yourself, what is it therefore? Always the word therefore 
ties it to the previous verse or the previous thought. He is building on his thoughts here in terms of of what the Holy Spirit is wanting to bring forth. And so we notice that word, therefore, and we realize that Peter is continuing this very same theme by applying it to how we are to conduct ourselves as citizens of any nation in the world that we find ourselves in as Christians. Sometimes you can uh, hear, as we're going to speak this morning, on the subject of Christian citizens. And sometimes a person can listen to that and have kind of a collective yawn in their heart. I knew I should have gone to Big Valley this morning. Last thing I want to hear about what's going on in my life is about Christian citizenship. But do you realize that these, and by the way, I say that affectionately toward Big Valley, uh, toward all the churches in town. So, but do you realize that these verses, Jesus said concerning the whole Bible, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my word will never pass away. And these verses are going to outlive the heavens and the earth as surely as John 3.16 is going to outlive the heavens and the earth. All scripture is important to us as Christians because I always feel that if it was important enough for God to inspire and reveal it to us, then it ought to be important enough to us to be instructed by it and then to obey it. Now, we remember that this letter was written to Christians who were in the midst of great persecution and great suffering. And that persecution and that suffering was in the early stages and was going to continue to grow dramatically. And this result of this persecution resulted in a quite a considerable suffering in their lives. And the persecution that they were facing was not a persecution that had its origin in another religion. Most persecution is of one religion against another, but that's not what's happening here. This persecution had its origin in the Roman emperor at the time, an emperor by the name of Caesar Nero, who falsely accused the Christians of uh, being arsons and burning down vast sections of the capital of Rome, and that is the city of Rome, when uh, Caesar Nero was responsible for it himself. And so this persecution that Christians are facing had its origin in government and a persecution that came from a very corrupt and dishonest government, at least at the highest levels uh, during this time of the Roman Empire. And because this persecution was coming against Christians, by a government, a government that most of them were citizens or a part of the Roman Empire, it raised the question, what is to be our attitude toward government? How are we to view it? What kind of citizens are we to be? And here Peter answers those questions. And I think that it's very important to realize that we are strangers and pilgrims in this world. We're just passing through We are, as Christians, supremely citizens of heaven, but that does not exempt us from being outstanding citizens of this world as well. And in this passage, God communicates his desire and his command that as Christians, we are to be the best citizens in any 
nation in the world that we find ourselves in. No other adherent to another religious system, no atheist, no agnostic, no any category of human being is to excel us as Christians in terms of being outstanding citizens within a nation. And here in this passage, we have his instruction, Peter's instruction on how to accomplish exactly that. And we notice in verse 13, first of all, that we are to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man. In other words, we are to obey the laws of the country that we are living in. Uh, We would put it this way today as Christians, we are to be law-abiding citizens. That's what God calls us to be. We're to be law-abiding citizens. Christians are never ever to have the identity or the stigma or the reputation in a society of being criminals, of being lawless, of being uh, against law and order or just doing our own thing. Christians are never to be known in a society as being a drain on that society or for people to think of us as Christians as a block in the nation in which we live and to think of us as being a negative asset that is a liability to the prosperity, the blessing, and the health of that nation. As Christians... We should never have to be arrested. Christians should never fill uh, the jails and the prisons of the nations that we live in, unless it's a righteous persecution that's being brought against us. Christians should never find, we should never find our name or our picture listed among the latest group that's listed in the paper for driving under the influence, and so forth. We should be the finest and the most law-abiding citizens that any nation possesses, to the point that law enforcement, as they would maybe take a moment to stop and think about the people that they deal with within their city, that they would stop and come to realize, you know, if everyone were a Christian, We'd hardly need a prison. We'd hardly need a jail. We'd hardly need a tenth of the police force that we possess. If everyone in this city were a Christian, it would sure make our job very, very easy. Or to, as it relates to the local government leaders, that they would come to wish that all of the citizens of their city were Christians where they might think to themselves, I hope everyone in Modesto comes to become a Christian. I hope all of the churches are filled with people, because overnight it would bring an end to the meth epidemic and all of the crime and the expense that goes with it. And then right up to the federal and the state levels of government, where they would have to stop and admit, you know, if the whole nation were Christians, it would certainly make our job of governing this nation a lot easier. Indeed, it would make the work of governing this nation almost effortless. 
We could slash our budgets if every citizen were as honest and hardworking as Christians. They're easily our very best citizens. And Peter tells us here in verse 13 that we are to obey all laws, whether they're national or whether they're state or whether they're local. Not only obey the laws of the federal government, uh, not only recognize offices like the President of the United States or a senator, a member of the House of Representatives, but also all the way down to the local level where we take and we honor and obey the laws and the enforcement of laws by police, by the local building inspector, by the librarian, uh, by the proverbial dog catcher. And so the obeying of the laws of the land are to go right down to the level of when we return our books to the library and then paying the appropriate uh, overdue <laughs> charges if we do run past the date. Now, you notice the motive for all of this in verse 13. Our motive is for the Lord's sake. A lot of times you can obey the laws of the land just because you don't want to get the attention of the FBI or the local police or to see the red light in your rearview mirror or whatever. There's a lot of motives for keeping uh, laws of the land. There's a lot of selfish motives, self-preservation, a lot of motives for keeping the laws of the land. Those aren't the highest motives for being a law-abiding citizen as a Christian uh, the highest motive of all is to do it, as he says in verse 13, for the Lord's sake. So the highest motive isn't to escape punishment for violating the laws or we don't want to run the risk of getting caught. But we do it for the sake of the Lord, for his reputation, concern for his reputation. Once people know that we are Christians then our reputation and God's reputation are closely tied in their minds. They come to conclusions about our God on the basis of what they see in us, and, and whether it's good or whether it's bad. I remember years and years ago watching an episode of the show Cops, and I, I don't know, we're talking about so many years ago, and it was just about the last time I watched it. It was on Saturday night, and um, it's just very, very bad preparation for Sunday morning. You just hate the whole world, you know. You get done with the thing. It's how stupid can people, and what in the, what are they thinking, you know, the whole deal. So I cut that out pretty quickly. But I remember watching one episode, and these two police officers, they showed up at a, uh, uh, somebody's house and there's a man and a wife in the house and it's a domestic disturbance a problem in the marriage and I mean they were going at it you know it's like a train wreck before your eyes I want to change the channel you know I just I saw enough of that in my life already and and is a child and and so here they are they're going at it and and uh, and just violent and then and then swearing and cursing and they're bleeping the whole thing and all. That wasn't a part of my childhood. 
the swearing part of things. But all of this was going on and, and all, and finally it just escalated and escalated until finally the police just had to cuff them both and was going to arrest them both. The woman, when she was put in cuffs, right, right where all this was taking place was in the dining room of the house. And she got this little dining room table up against the wall, kind of like a kitchenette off of the, the kitchen area, up against the wall. And there's this huge picture of Jesus on the wall. <laughs> so, she, so she gets cuffed, and then she declares to the police that she's a Christian, and she starts to witness to them of their need for Christ. And I'll tell you, it, it, I, is, in the minds of those two law enforcement officers and now a national audience, I mean, the Lord's name was mud. I mean, just terrible damage done to his reputation, completely inconsistent with what God calls us to be in a society. So we're to obey the laws of the land, not grudgingly, uh, not even supremely for self-preservation, but we're to obey those laws of, of, of the, the land with the realization that it's just one more way that God has given us to glorify himself in this world and to identify ourselves being Christians and filled with the Holy Spirit, that our lives are under a different management than lives that don't know him. And the more people become lawbreakers in society, and this is a problem in our country right now, um, there's a breakdown of law and order that's happening. And we, we are not getting ahead of this trend at all. And so with the breakdown that we've got and, and all what's happening, the tendency can be for us as Christians to look and then model what, what laws we're going to obey or not obey on the basis of whether they're being obeyed or not being obeyed within the culture as a whole. And we can't do that. We can't follow the world into their uh, disobedience. We can't join them. The fact of the matter is, and the fact that the world becomes more and more lawless, becomes a, a, a greater and greater challenge for us as Christians. And I think probably the biggest challenge are those of you who own businesses, where, you, where so much is being uh, done under the table and all this kind of stuff going on, and, and our government is, is not enforcing these laws to keep a level playing field for everyone in business. And I don't need to tell you the headache that this creates for you. But on that level and on any level, the temptation can be, I'll drop down to the practice. But as things dip down, the silver lining of a, a decline of law and order within a society is that if we hold the line in being what God has called us to be within that society, then our light and our life shines more brightly than ever. And the fact of the matter also is bad or lawlessness or wickedness, it cannot, you can't go in that direction forever. It ultimately uh, crashes and burns. And then there's a lot of casualties out of that. And God wants to keep us far, and away, far away from that crashing 
and that burning when it does occur. And so we don't join them. We recognize this is an opportunity for my life to stand out in stark contrast to what is going on in the world around me. Now, one of the exceptions of being obedient to the laws of the land is that if any human government orders us to do something that requires a disobedience to the word of God or the law of God, then we always choose to be obedient to the law of God. Even if that requires being disobedient to the law of man, we always have to be good citizens of heaven first and foremost. We see this continually in the Bible spoken of. There was a time in Peter's ministry, the disciples in the early church and the Jewish religious leaders had come to them and ordered them to stop preaching and and doing miracles in the name of Jesus. Stop letting Jerusalem know about this Jesus. The problem is, is that the disciples and us had been given a great commission uh, to teach and preach concerning Jesus. And so here is a law of the land that is in violation of a law that God had given to them. And so Peter stands up and John were told in Acts chapter four, and they responded to these Jewish religious leaders, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and we have heard later on when these same disciples were on trial again for this very same thing and they were called on the carpet to explain why they were disobeying the command not to preach Christ and have all these people becoming Christians and healing them all over the place and, and, and all. And, and, and so why did, why did they violate this command uh, not to teach concerning Jesus? And Peter again, he answered on behalf of all of the apostles, and he said to them, we ought to obey God rather than men. And so that's where, that's where the line hits. And that's the exception to the uh, uh, other larger rule. There may be times when the single greatest thing that we can do for our government is to refuse to honor an unrighteous law or a sinful law. You say it, where we would be viewed by the government. Well, God's command says this, the government is commanding the polar opposite, and we take and make that stand with what God has said. We would do it, though we might end up being arrested as a result of it, but we would, in doing that, it would not be a violation of being a good citizen of that nation. Because in that case, the greatest thing that a citizen could do for the health of that nation is to resist the legalization and the enforcement of wrongdoing or the enforcement and legalization of sin. And so uh, when we when we find ourselves and we may very well in our lifetime, if the Lord tarries in this country in that kind of a place as these mandates are made. Uh, related to unborn life and, and all kinds of different things, we may find ourselves in just that place. But as long as government doesn't go beyond the clear teaching 
of the Bible concerning righteousness, then it deserves the support of her Christian citizens. Now, notice second in verse 14. It's important for us to understand the role of government in this fallen world. Why don't we just, why don't we we have no government at all? We just all do whatever we want. And it's important to realize that government uh, is a God-given institution following the flood when God uh, brought judgment on the world at the time uh, of Noah. God established human government after that flood, and he decreed to Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. And that decree gave authority to men to judge criminal matters and to punish offenders. It was the initiation of human government in uh, in history that way. Now, notice that Peter tells us that the main function of government is to punish evildoers and to encourage or to reward uh, good doers. That's the rock bottom function of human government as God gives it is is the punishment of evildoers and then the reward of those who do good. So if you take and you say, all right, everybody's got a debate today about how big is government supposed to be. And you can talk about that for a thousand lifetimes. But we do know that at the at the very foundation of government, Government has a very simple responsibility, and that is to keep its citizens safe. It is to keep its citizens safe from attack from without, invasion by another nation. That's why we have a military. That's why any nation of the world has a military. They are fulfilling a God-given part of the institution of government. A second role of government is to protect its citizens from attack from within. That is to be attacked or violated by another member of that nation. We call that crime. And so there's the establishment of law enforcement within a nation to bring a stop to crime that's being committed by one citizen against another. How in the world we understand the punishment of evildoers, but how in the world... Uh, do you reward uh, good doers? How does a government reward good doers? I remember, I don't know if they do it that much anymore, but I remember a few times, a little more when I was a kid growing up, and, but a couple times in my adult life where um, maybe they had a surplus or something or come some kind of a community project, but where if a police officer was driving and recognized the driver to be an extraordinarily good driver, they'd pull him over and give him a turkey. You know, Thanksgiving time or Christmas or something like that. That's a reward of those who are doing good. And of course, today our law enforcement, they're so busy, they don't have time to hardly notice anybody that's doing something good. I'm sure they do notice, but to reward it, I mean, it's, it's all just fighting crime. But but how does a society, how does a government reward those that are doing good? And the single best way that they do it is by providing them with an environment of safety and law and order 
through the punishment of lawdoers. The greatest thing that a government can do to be a blessing to those who are doing good is to enforce law and order within the nation because it allows them those that do good to prosper in that environment and not become a victim of those who are doing evil. There's some verses in the New Testament that speak of our God's command for uh, our support as Christians for God-given institution of government. Romans chapter 13 is famous in this vein. Let me read a few verses to you. Paul wrote and he said, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. You get a ticket or you get arrested. For rulers are not a terror to good works. Uh, You're never looking for a black and white when you're going the speed limit. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good and you'll have praise uh, from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. Be very, very. That's my addition uh, to it. For he does not, speaking of Our law enforcement does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. And God's word says that as a Christian, if we enjoy the benefits of a government, we should also recognize the responsibility uh, to support that government. In other words, we enjoy the benefits of a strong military to protect us. We enjoy the benefits of Uh, local and national law enforcement for our protection, the benefits of a a judicial system with the courts and the jails and prisons to help maintain law and order. We enjoy the blessings of infrastructure and roads and bridges and all of these kind of things. And so uh, because all of that costs money, legitimately so, uh, we are to be supportive of that. Paul wrote also to Timothy and he said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Therefore I exhort first of all that all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. The gospel really The whole idea is that as there is law and order and stability in a country, uh, that's a very, very profitable situation for the expansion of the kingdom. And also in this vein, Jesus commanded, he said, render therefore to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar and then render unto God the things that are God's. In other words, because government is a God given institution, Jesus recognized that. And it provides us with law and order. It's worthy of being supported through taxes. Now, what those tax rates should be 
Jesus didn't give any revelation related to that, and I have no interest in getting into that argument uh, at all. But this whole uh, taxes on some level are, uh, are worthy for the support of, of this institution. Now, this command of Peter is not saying that every government official is virtuous or that every... Now, this command of Peter is not saying that every government official is virtuous. A little chuckle over here of that. And it's not saying that every law is commendable because they're not. But it is an endorsement of the institution of government in general, the necessity of government in general. Remember, Caesar Nero is the king. At this, the emperor at this time, not a virtuous man at all, not a good man on, on virtually any level. And, and yet, as the old saying goes, we are to respect the office even if we cannot respect uh, the officer. Now, the point that Peter is making here is that government within a nation is better than no government at all. And the result of no government at all would just be pure anarchy. I mean, it'd be, a, it'd be a world you wouldn't want to live in. It would be survival of the fittest. It would be might makes right. It would be whatever gang or group of terrorists could get the most guns or the most this or that, and everyone else would be intimidated and badgered into submission. It just would be a really lousy, uh, crummy world uh, to live in. And so this law and order is always better uh, than chaos, and chaos is the alternative to law and order, and law and order is required in the fallenness uh, of this world. And, and even when we are subjected to bad government officials, the Bible says for us as Christians that we can live confident that God is in ultimate control of human history, and not just of human history, but also of our individual lives. Daniel uh, spoke in Daniel chapter 2, and he prayed and he said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and he raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness. And light dwells within him. Jesus himself, when Pilate had him and was trying him in John chapter 19, he said to Jesus, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? And Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. And therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. This doesn't mean that as Christians we cannot resist uh, injustice or resist the abuse of power. It doesn't mean that as Christian citizens we just kind of lay down and we don't have a voice for God or righteousness within, within a nation. It's interesting that as you read the book of Acts more than once, the Apostle Paul, he exercised his right as a Roman citizen, to stop a 
violation of Roman law that was about to unfold. They were about to scourge him in one of the cities that he was meeting opposition in and sharing the gospel. And before they scourged him, he said to them, do you scourge a Roman citizen? You could not scourge a Roman citizen without having a proper trial. And they were going to scourge him, whip him without a proper trial. And when they realized he was exercising his uh, rights as a Roman citizen, they backed off and apologized and ultimately set him free. Another time when he was under arrest in Caesarea for many long years, uh, being denied a speedy trial that Rome uh, guaranteed its citizens, he finally, after uh, one Roman governor after another in the area of of Israel was violating his rights as a Roman uh, citizen. He just took and he appealed his case to Rome to be heard by Caesar. That was the right of any Roman citizen. And and then uh, he was given given that right and sent to Rome for that hearing. Additionally, in this country, we have the ability to vote uh, for what is right and what is wrong. So I, it puzzles me. Uh, you know, I I know what the end of the book is. I know what the end of human history is. I know how things are moving, how they end up. I know that it's not a pretty sight in the last days in terms of uh, anarchy and in terms of difficulty. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't as Christians exercise every bit of influence that we have for righteousness and to be salt and to be light within a culture, even if it's collapsing all around us, to still use every means that God has given us to be an influence for good and for godliness in that nation. And it seems to me that voting is one of those things. You get a ballot, you know, and and when I get a ballot, and, and I look at it, and I just I say, Lord, here's your ballot. Who do you want me to vote for? Who represents your values? Who represents what and is going to take a position in government that you intend government to be in terms of propositions? What does your word say related to these propositions? I want this is your ballot. You vote through me here. And probably half of the uh, propositions that are on any given ballot have God has doesn't say anything one way or another, whether they put a new pipeline for water in in series or not. He doesn't have a position on this. You can vote either way. But there's a lot of issues where where we can use that as an opportunity to be an influence for righteousness. And then not only that, not stopping just with that, but as, as some of you have done to run for office and be an influence right within that institution of government. Now, third in verse 15, Peter tells us that being good citizens is one more way by which we can, as Christians, silence the ignorance of foolish men. He's not saying that all men are foolish 
or all men and women that don't know Christ are foolish. Again, Christians are being persecuted. They're being slandered and accused of being anti-government by being anti-Rome. They're being accused of having burnt uh, Rome to the city of Rome to the ground. All of these are false accusations, but they were being believed by ignorant and foolish people. And what is an ignorant and foolish person in this case? People who believe something without bothering to check out the facts. If they had checked out the facts, they would realize that the Christians were not behind what happened there. And the best way to silence the accusation was for Christians uh, to just, by their attitudes and by their life, uh, to become the finest citizens in the Roman Empire. And, and that was the best way to disprove the lies and the accusations. And then finally, in verse 16, uh, well, next to finally, he's, he tells us that there are no exceptions for us as Christians in obeying uh, the laws of the land that are uh, consistent with the word of God. Notice in verse 16, he said, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. In other words, when the laws of man are even more demanding upon us than the laws of God, we shouldn't necessarily violate those laws in order to show off our Christian liberty. Uh, for instance, if I am living as a Christian in a Muslim country and my interest in living there is supremely that Muslims might come to know Christ by watching my life, then I shouldn't drink alcohol. As a Christian, according to the law of uh, the, the word of God, a Christian is able to drink alcohol, never to come under its influence, never to be drunken. That's never to go in that direction. But uh, a Christian does have the liberty to drink a little bit of wine or something like that. And, and so there, there is that freedom but a Christian, because in a Muslim country, according to Islam, alcohol is absolutely forbidden for Muslims. A Christian has the freedom to drink in that country, but should put that freedom aside for the higher cause of being a witness for Christ. In other words, we put our Christian witness above our liberties uh, even when the, the demands of the laws of the land are greater than our freedoms or our liberties as Christians. The law of love, the law of concern for God's glory, it always trumps our liberties. Additionally, in this vein, being citizens of God's greater kingdom, the kingdom of God, does not give us the right to casually disobey the laws of man uh, or to... Uh, disregard the laws of man. Sometimes people uh, can get that way. I'm a Christian. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. I'm a citizen of heaven. And so I can violate the laws of man. And Peter comes in and says, no, you can't. Not if, not if those laws are consistent with God's word. For example, <clears throat> I can't cheat on paying my taxes to Caesar in order to send more money into the mission field. 
God doesn't need that kind of help. So we don't violate the law of man to do something uh, spiritual or we think is spiritual. And God isn't rich enough to have us pay our taxes and also uh, use us to support someone in the mission field. I can't lie as a Christian in order to advance the cause of Christ. You say, well, I lied, but you know, it, it, it did some good there, you know, for God. God's not interested in the help that way. It's interesting. You say, well, that's just like, it, isn't, that's just the truth about every religion, isn't it? No, it isn't. For instance, in Islam, a Muslim person is free to lie in or if that lie is required to advance the cause of Islam. I remember one time I was watching a television show years ago and they had a it was a Ted Koppel on Nightline. This was a long time ago. Ted Koppel hasn't done Nightline in years, but a million years ago. And they had this big thing where they had all of these representatives uh, from Israel on one side of the room and then all of these representatives of the Palestinian authority on the other side of the room in a debate. And the Palestinian authority, the folks on that panel were Muslims. And I'm sitting there and I'm listening. And I mean, I'm no expert in foreign policy or or, uh, the history of the Middle East. I know a fair amount. But as I would li- listen to them, it was just one lie after another after another. I'm talking to the television set. I said, how can you lie like that when anybody who knows anything about the subject knows you are lying? Don't you know you represent a religion and you represent a God beyond Palestinian uh, statehood? And I come to find out later that uh, there's the freedom to lie if if a lie is necessary to advance Islam. One time we had a presentation here on uh, Islam, and it wasn't a perfect presentation, I'll say that. And uh, but a guy came to me and uh, a Muslim in in town, he came to me to meet with me privately. And he just read me the riot act over what got presented that evening and the, and the representation of Islam and all this. And so I said, well, you know, I don't I, I, I understand why you're upset on some level. But but I, I but but on another level, what you're representing here is completely wrong. I said, your scriptures say this and they say this and they say that. And they said, no, they don't. And, don't, and you know, and I've got them right in front of me sitting right in front of me. And, and so he's just lying to my face. I say, you're lying to my face here on this. Sometimes you can be, just be very direct. This is not being misunderstood. And yet he's operating under that principle to protect the reputation of Islam, the freedom to lie and that. But in Christianity... It doesn't hold the laws of man in that kind of contempt or that kind of low regard. We are not free to disregard laws having to do with honesty because in Christianity, both the end does not justify the means. 
The end is important to God because it reflects upon him. But the means by which we get to that end reflects upon God just as much. And so the end doesn't justify the means. And then finally in verse 17, and this is my finally, finally, uh, here we have what I would just encapsulate as Peter telling us as Christians, as much as lies within us as Christians, we all we need to get along with other citizens within the nation. And so as citizens of a nation of the world, as Christians, we are a part of something that's cooperative. We are part of something that is shared. Not every we share a nation and a government with those who are Christians and those who are not Christians. And no nation is made up solely of Christians. We share a nation with people who different people who hold different political views than than we hold. And because of that, on some spiritual or spiritual level or some spiritually uh, non-spiritual level, I mean, or non-spiritually based level, we need to get along with people short of compromising the word of God. And Christians need to set a good example uh, for this. And so how how do we do that as Christian citizens? Peter tells us, first of all, we're to honor all people. He's talking about people that don't know the Lord yet here. He's going to talk about Christians in the next phrase there. In other words, we are to treat all people with respect. Whatever they're they're coming from on something, or or whether they know the Lord or they don't know the Lord, as long as there's no violation of, of us in terms of obedience to the Word of God. The word honor there means to honor, it means to value, it means to esteem. And God gives us a great um, heart of compassion for those who live around us that don't know the Lord yet. And one of the things that I think it helps in building our respect for people and having a respect for people, not everything that people do is respectful, Having respect is to realize that they're created by the God that I love and the God that I serve. God made them. And though in a fallen condition, they've been made in the image of God. It helps me to realize in respecting people that no one is going to live the life that they're supposed to live until they become Christians, until the Holy Spirit comes into their life, gives them the will to do and the power to do of God's good pleasure. So I don't bring an expectation in a relationship with a non-Christian that they're going to act like a Christian because they don't have the will to do that or the power to do that yet. And another thing that, in terms of maybe the biggest thing for establishing a respect for other people is the realization that God loves them as much as he loves me. doesn't mean that everybody's saved because God loves them. God loves everybody. Not everybody's saved because not everybody trusts in Christ. But he loves them, and he's working every day to reach them with his salvation, to bring them into his uh, kingdom. And, and he loves them so much that he sent his son into the world to die 
for them. And so we're to show respect to them as a fellow human being. We're not to be arrogant or demeaning in our treatment of anyone because they don't know the Lord. We are to be very polite, well-mannered citizens in our contact with others in, uh, in, w- within uh, the nation. The weapons that we use for the advancement of our influence, they're not car bombs, and, and they're not you know, blowing people up or cutting their heads off or anything like that. That's, that's not, that's not, those are not the most powerful weapons for advancing truth. As Christians, we possess the two greatest weapons And the weapons are truth and love. Truth is powerful stuff. And to present that truth and to present it in a loving way, that's powerful stuff. And it's also a a way of showing respect to people. He tells us that we're to love the brotherhood. This is speaking of fellow Christians. We're to love all people, of course, but a special obligation to love fellow Christians and uh, recognizing that there are a lot of differences between Christians and uh, a lot of disagreements even. But there's that recognition that every Christian in this world is, is facing a lot of difficulty in being faithful uh, to the Lord. They're a long way from heaven, just like we're a long way from home, a long way from heaven. And this world isn't an easy place for me, and I recognize it isn't an easy place for them. And then we're also to fear God. And that word fear means to honor, to respect, to attribute high status to someone. And so we fear doing anything that would displease him. We fear misrepresenting him even as a citizen in this world. In other words, our love and our respect for the people of this world, whether they're saved or unsaved, is never to come at the expense of disrespecting God uh, by way of compromising or disobeying his commandments. We express our respect to him as God by honoring him with our obedience. Disobedience in the life of a child of God is so disrespectful toward God. And so we fear God and then we honor the king. Again, we are to demonstrate respect to those who hold positions of authority within our society, within our nation. And we respect them, recognizing that they're officials that are appointed by God for the maintenance of a ordered society. But with that respect, as uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, uh, comes a, we couple with that respect, a prayer for our, uh, those that are in positions uh, of authority to pray for them and uh, so that the advancement of the gospel can uh, take place in, in their position of oversight and for God to move heaven and earth or whatever is necessary, heaven to move heaven and earth and a politician, uh, whatever is necessary for his will to be done. And so just concluding here, though, our primary citizenship is in heaven. And we know that, but it does not preclude being an outstanding citizen 
on a national level, on a state level, on a local level, and the very neighborhood and city that God has put us in to represent him because it is uh, important to bring glory to him as we do that. In Christianity, there is no secular and sacred division. Our whole lives represent the Lord. And this is how he wants us to conduct ourselves as citizens in this world. I've studied these passages and read them many, many times through the years. But I never regret coming under their influence once again to have them just test my attitudes again, test my speech again, test my thinking again, uh, test my actions again. Because I know that you and I are the same way as Christians. We want every single thing in our life to speak of Christ. And the older we get, the more conscious we are of how finite time is. And so we come to prize every way that God has given us to bring glory to him by living a different kind of life because we are under new management, the management of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for this instruction this morning. So easy to get all goofed up and get this heavenly citizenship and then this earthly citizenship all try to figure it out on our own and mar it all. And so, Lord, we're very, very thankful. Most of all for our heavenly citizenship, we're so grateful to be a part of your family and your kingdom. But, Lord, we value, as long as we're in this world, every opportunity for you to be seen through our lives and for you to use just our simple obedience in an area that is so often considered unspiritual and secular to give this to you, Lord, to use in our lives individually, but for Christians as a whole, so that the whole world would look and say, if they were all Christians, how much better everything would be, how much more stable the city would be, the nation would be. So this morning, Lord, we commit ourselves, the power of your Holy Spirit, to being that kind of citizen. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us and remind us in the course of our day and our processing of life, our driving, our library books, our everything, to use all of it as a chance to bring glory to you. Thank you for the privilege, Lord, of living that kind of a life. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you sit here this morning, now stand, and you are not yet a Christian, God wants to bring you into his kingdom.